Good morning, everyone. Isn't it good to be in the house of the Lord and do things together? Well, let us sing in our first songs in your hymnal number 528. Come and let us all unite to sing and let's stand. I think it works better. to be here in person, seeing friendly faces, fellowshipping together, and bringing worship to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his holy name. We welcome all who are gathered here this morning, and a special welcome to our guests that have come to worship with us. Lord, we receive the blessing you have prepared for us during this morning worship hour. 
For an opening scripture passage, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 to 17. And the first verse is what we have on our backdrop here. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will, be, will become clear. For the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's, if anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Do you not know that you are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. God's word tells us to keep ourselves pure, because God dwells in us, and we should be a reflection of his nature. Uh, Shall we turn to the praises and concerns of the church? I'll ask Terry Clausen to come up. He's got an announcement. In the meantime, I'll read the other announcements. There are several announcements that are not in the bulletin. Uh, the first one, if you have signed up to attend Sunday morning worship services, you do not have to re-register for the following Sundays. For those that have not signed up and want to attend services, please register. If you find yourself unable to attend a service while registered, please let the church office know that you cannot attend. Also, our services are going to be recorded on Sunday mornings only. This is a change from the past where we did the recording on Thursdays. This being the case, our worship service message will be available on our church website and on YouTube on channel 12, or, or sorry. This being the case, our worship service message will be available on our church website and on YouTube on Tuesdays beginning at 9 a.m., and on cable TV channel 12 on Tuesday evenings beginning at 4 p.m. For those who want to contribute tithes and offerings, there's a donation box on the table outside in the foyer. And uh, one more announcement. There is a community worship service planned for August 8th. However, this is a video service. There will be a link to our church on our church website, and we are contemplating showing the service in our church on that day. Uh, persons with health needs in Winker or in Boundary Trails Health Center, Jane Brown, Jacob Dick, Betty Reimer, and Leona Berg. Uh, let's pray for our children's storytellers, Darlene Dirksen, Val Dick, Eileen Engbrecht, Anna Friesen, and Judy Unrah, as they spend much time in preparation and presenting the gospel through these stories. Pray for Winkler and Fire Rescue Department as they encounter many difficult situations. Pray for our minister, missionaries, K and K. And there has been several expressions of sympathy, and we want to uh, make sure you uphold these families in your prayer. Uh, Doug Jansen passed away Saturday, July 17th. He was a son to Menno and Nettie Jansen. Helen Hebert passed away Monday, July 19th. She was a sister-in-law to Anne Weens, Dorothy Hebert, and Jesse Hebert. Uh, as well as uh, John J. Ham passed away on Sunday, July 18th. He was a brother to Henry and Hilda Hamm. Uh, private family services were held for these people. Uh, Terry's going to talk about the note of thanks. Uh, take note of uh, if you want to participate in the birthday 
milestone celebration for Helena Falk. Uh, staff uh, holiday hours, take note of them. And uh, then there's Vocation Bible School. Uh, Anna Friesen has uh, organized this, and if uh, she needs volunteers. So if you are willing and able to volunteer and help out, please contact her. And then take a, a note of the list of people celebrating uh, birthdays and holidays. Uh, long list. Uh, God is faithful. Thank you, Jack. Uh, further to what you have in your bulletins, I would like to take this opportunity to thank my production team for their part in providing online church worship services. Uh, initially, when I was asked to come on board with this project, it was to help out for two weeks until COVID restrictions would be lifted. Well, as you know, God and the COVID virus had other plans. And now, a year and a half later, we hope we can lay recorded services to rest. I think. Uh, maybe. <laughs> Our team worked well together, with Pastor Victor organizing a recording schedule each week. And we simply recorded all the worship service participants according to the schedule. We relied heavily on our cameramen and soundboard operators. You have all their names in the bulletin. And I want to recognize all they did for this project. John Lepke, our faithful video editor, worked with the files we recorded and assembled them into an orderly service. Sometimes I think we challenged him a bit by sending him some fairly messy files to work with. But he would usually perform his magic, so to speak, with them and come up with a reasonable service in the end. Thank you, John. The way our team functioned was a good example of what happens when we work together. We call it teamwork. We all had our jobs to do, and we were committed to a common goal. Our goal was to produce a worship service for our church that would honor God and bless our congregation. Thank you, team, and may God bless all of you for the way you served our church. Amen to that. Let's uh, go to God in prayer. Holy God, we come before your throne of grace and thank you that we can gather in person to fellowship and to glorify praise and worship you. Lord, you have made us an interactive people, and we need each other for support and understanding. So gird us with your inspiration and support. Where we need each other, help us to obey the promptings of your Holy Spirit to intercede for one another. Where anxiety and fear has enveloped us, dispel it with your peace, since you are the only one that can present that peace. As your vessels, Help us to keep ourselves pure and undefiled so that we would reflect the temple of God that you have called us to represent. As your children, you consider us an inheritance of your royalty and joint heirs with Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Forgive us where we have committed sin. Lord God, we pray the blood of Jesus Christ on lost souls and on those shackled to sin. Release them from their sinful nature and draw them into your presence by your Holy Spirit's power, and reveal yourself and your truth to them, that they might be set free. We pray for revival, Lord, and that Christians would join you where you are at work. Lord, we pray that you would uh, 
be with the physicians to meet the health needs of Jane Brown, Jacob Dick, Betty Reimer, and Leona Berg at Boundary Trails Health Center, as well as others who struggle with health concerns within our congregation. We thank you for those that are willing to serve within our congregation, and particularly the children's storytellers who put much time and effort into preparing and presenting the gospel in the children's stories. We thank you and pray for the well-being of our Winker Fire and Rescue Department as they encounter many difficult, traumatic life-and-death situations. For our missionaries, we pray that they would be faithful to your assignment and call on their lives. Lord, these are your servants. Place a protective hedge on them and their families, and do not let the evil one wreak havoc on the territory of their assignment, but place them in the midst of revival where you are already at work. We pray this blessing on K&K and on their family. Lord, it has been a particularly difficult week of grief. As many in our congregation have experienced the valley of death, we mourn with Menno, Nettie, and the Jansen family, the Helen Hebert family, as well as the John J. Ham family, as they experience the pain of losing a loved one in their family. Lord, we place these families into your compassionate hands and ask that you would be the God of peace and comfort to them and that you would wrap them in your arms of love as they mourn. We also rejoice with those who experience the joy of celebrating another birthday or anniversary as you prolong their days and relationships. Lord, we pray for the leaders and elected officials of our country, province, local municipalities, school boards, health boards, and other local jurisdictions. We pray that you would draw them and that they would seek a real and personal love relationship with you so that they would govern in a way that would bring blessing instead of curses upon us as a people. We pray for exceeding wisdom, guidance, direction, and leadership abilities so that they would stand against the wiles of the evil one, which is so rampant in today's perilous society. Lord, this morning we present you our worship in song, in music ministry, in a mission clip, in the reading of scripture, and in the expounding of your word by Pastor Victor. Anoint your servants and this congregation during this service, and may it be our expression of love to you, for we ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ, with thanksgiving. Amen. Our next song is, for those who use the hymnal 586, I know not why God's wondrous grace to me he hath made known. Bye. 
song is We Praise Thee, O God. We'll sing verses 1, 3, 4, and 5, 
beautiful heaven must be Sweet home of the happy and free Fair haven of rest for the weary How beautiful heaven must be Angels so sweetly are singing Up there by the beautiful sea Sweet chords from their gold harps are ringing How beautiful heaven must be How beautiful heaven Sweet home of the happy and free Fair even of rest for the weary How beautiful heaven must be
Scripture reading this morning will be taken from Revelations chapter 1. I'll be reading the entire chapter. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angels to his servants, John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart, what is written in it, because the time is near. To the seven churches in the province of Isaiah, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom of, and patient endurance that ours and Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned and saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands were some someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were like were white like wool, and white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like a sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Pulpit's not big enough for my Bible and my notes. (laughs) Maybe my Bible's too big, I don't know. Somebody told me this morning I would need a bigger Bible as I get older. (laughs) So maybe one day I'll walk up with that one. Well, having read that first chapter of Revelation, uh, I think uh, let's pray together before we continue. Father in heaven, it is an awesome thing to hear your word and to hear the words that were just read. I pray that you would teach us to tremble at your word and to consider that you are a holy God. And that we are worthy of, of every curse in, in Scripture, except that Jesus died for us and we believe you. 
And so, Father, uh, um, we, we, take, we take a look at this word with, with fear and trembling. Uh, also, Father, with great anticipation of the great things that you have in store for your people. And so uh, I pray that you would inhabit our minds as we hear these words and as we think about them, that you would teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last Sunday, if you were watching, we talked about a holy God. And to do that, we did a quick overview of the history of the nation of Israel, from the time that they were delivered out of Egypt to their demise at the hands of the king of Assyria. That was about a 750-year spread there. We followed Israel's growth from uh, under uh, growth as a nation uh, under Moses' leadership first, then through the period of the judges, and then came the uh, the time of the kings. And under under reasonable stability for about 120 years, uh, they were under kings Saul, David, and Solomon. But then the kingdom was torn in two because of Solomon's sin. And uh, ten tribes were given to Jeroboam uh, in the north, and then in the south, uh, one tribe was left for Rehoboam, uh, the son of Solomon. Uh, you wonder where the twelfth uh, <laughs> tribe is? Um, it depends how, how the scripture talks about it. Uh, so I, th- I think sometimes uh, Judah and Benjamin are lumped together to form Judah. Also, the, the Levites didn't have their own tribe, and, and when Jeroboam was given the kingdom, he kicked all the Levites out of the priesthood and just let anybody who wanted to be a priest be a priest. And then uh, those Levites uh, all went to, to Judah also. So there was more than just the, the tribe of Judah in Judah, but it was referred to as Judah. For about 200 years, uh, God was calling out to Israel to turn from her wicked ways and live. Uh, But after 200 years, uh, finally God had to honor the terms of the covenant, and he brought the curses upon Israel that the prophets had warned about. God destroyed Israel and removed her from his sight, as, uh, as it says in Amos. But up until the very end, God sent prophets, who continued to call Israel to repentance, that she should not turn from her, uh, that, but she would not turn from her evil ways, and so finally Israel became not a people. They were, uh, if you read the account, the king of Assyria pulled them all out of their land and put spread them around uh, the cities of the Medes and uh, and in, through Assyria, and they moved other people into that region, and so that would be one of the reasons. When we read in the New Testament the detest for Samaria, that would be one reason, right? It's not, it's not their people. It's a, these are Gentiles. Or it's a polluted land. And so uh, that's anyway, was, was the end of the northern kingdom, and, and it, never, it never revived. What we saw in the prophet Amos was God speaking his final warning to Israel. And in there was also his final call to repentance, and his final judgment on Israel. Then in 2 Kings 17 is where we read the account of their demise and what actually took place. And all of that was prophesied, sorry, all that was prophesied concerning Israel did come to pass. And so the question, one question 
I guess we could ask is, what, is, what does that mean for us? And I think it, it tells us that God stands by his word. It tells us that God is incredibly patient, not wanting anyone to perish. For 200 years, he was calling them. And for 200 years, he said, no thanks, no thanks. I'll worship my own God. And it tells us that God will carry out the curses as he said he would if his people would not obey and live by the covenant. God is not like man. God does not change. He does not lie. God is patient and loving and sovereign. No one else is so unchanging, so pure and undefiled, so long-suffering and sovereign over all that exists. Our God is different. He is set apart from all others. Our God is holy. And so what does that mean for us? If this holy God created us in his image, then surely he must expect us to represent him in some way. If we are the image of God, could that imply some kind of allegiance to him? If we are the image of God, might it indicate that there is a code of behavior uh, that we need to live by? Perhaps it means accepting and promoting his view of the world. Maybe it means that we represent his interests on earth as ambassadors represent their nation's interests uh, in, the, in the nations that they uh, go and serve in. But what happens if we fail to carry out this representation of a holy God? What if we betray that allegiance, break the code of behavior, or promote views that are contrary to his? What if we transgress all these things? It puts us in opposition to the one whose image we bear. Remember, we are walking on his earth. We are breathing his air. We're actually living in bodies that he has made. And we are influencing people that he has created. Our contrary position puts us at odds with the Lord of the universe. As with Israel, he calls us to repentance. And as with Israel, if we refuse, he will deliver the curse. Our God is a holy God. He does not mess around with sin. He sent his son to die for our sin that we might be freed from it and reconciled to him. To refuse that offer is to welcome the curse because either he dies for my sin and I receive eternal life or I die for my sin and with no escape from the second death. Holiness is to sin what oil is to water, or light to darkness, or heat to ice. There is no place for sin where holiness is present. Our God is a holy God. So that's a bit of a summary of kind of where we went last time. And what I was pondering uh, as a follow-up message, uh, I was wondering, what, what would a holy God want to say to his church? And I thought of the letter of Jesus to the churches in Revelation. If we think, as many of us have, that the world is forever changed because of numerous aspects of this pandemic, then what should the church be prepared for? Or maybe we could ask, um, what condition is the church in 
that would give us some ideas how to prepare ourselves to meet our God and be counted faithful as we walk in this world. This letter begins in chapter 1, verse 4. And here I was corrected as I read. (laughs) Revelation 1 to 3 does not contain seven letters to seven churches. It contains one letter to the seven. Revelation 1-4 reads, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. So it's one letter. I was talking to Terry Clausen the other day, and he said he had been on a seven cities tour. I think we'd we'd probably be interested in seeing that sometime. (laughs) And uh, he visited those ancient cities. And they were all ruins, of course, but there there seemed to be uh, archaeological evidence that there were churches in each of these seven cities uh, that are mentioned in Revelation. This is fascinating to me because uh, four of the seven churches are only mentioned in Revelation and nowhere else in the scriptures. There's likely a double meaning behind the uh, idea of identifying seven churches, and that is that the seven represent the whole church. Seven being a number that represents fullness or completeness. Uh, And by that definition, we would be included as part of the whole church. So this letter is as much for us as it is for for the early church. And the letter does not end after the seven churches are addressed. It continues to the end of the book. So I think we can accept Revelation as one letter to the seven churches mentioned but also to the whole church. So what follows after that, in quite some detail, is John's description of Jesus. First John introduces him. Just as you might uh, introduce a prominent member of society at some kind of an honors banquet, you start with listing his titles, and then maybe some accomplishments, the kind of work that he's working on now, and then your speaker would take the podium. So if you, if, you th- if you look at it through that grid, listen to the introduction. Here are the titles. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth. It's a pretty impressive list of titles. And then his accomplishments. Who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then here's what he's planning to do, or or what he's working on. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. He's coming. And then he takes the podium, and he speaks. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And if that isn't enough to bring us to our knees, God continues with the description of Jesus as he saw him that day on the island of Patmos when he received his revelation. What that description does is give us a sense of what we've already discovered about God, the Father. He's a holy God, untouchable, unapproachable, and completely pure and powerful. 
The description of Jesus here gives us that very same impression. Dazzling in his brilliance, awesome in his beauty, overwhelming in his power, pristine in his holiness. Just as God the Father is holy, Jesus the Son is likewise holy. When John saw him, even though he had walked with him three years on the earth, when he saw him in this vision, he fell at his feet as though dead. And I fully expect that that will be our response when we see Jesus for the very first time. Our God is a holy God. So back to the question, what does that mean for us? Or, what does a holy God have to say to his church? What does the eternal Son of Man want his church to know? Well, let's start reading. Let's start in chapter 2, verse 1, and I'll read the address to the first church. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, where, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Well, there are a lot of things to pick up here. But let's start with, what is, what is good about this church? What does Jesus say is good about this church? And Jesus begins his address to this church in Ephesus by acknowledging that there are good things. He recognizes their patient endurance, which means that they're tolerating a situation that tests their faith. Yet, they are unwilling to put up with those who do evil. That's an interesting distinction and one I think we could learn to make. Tolerance seems to be a big deal these days, and society would have us tolerate everyone and everything. After all, tolerating a person should include tolerating everything they do, right? If I don't tolerate your activities, then I must hate you, is what our society is saying. So that means I have to tolerate everything you do. That's the logic of our culture. The believers in Ephesus seem to have this right, though. They tolerate people in situations that are not favorable to them, but they do not tolerate the practice of evil. To tolerate does not mean we don't distinguish between people and their deeds. The Ephesians actually seem quite bold in confronting those who call themselves apostles and are not. They distinguish between truth and falsehood, 
between people and their evil deeds. Jesus also acknowledges that they have not grown weary in their endurance, and they hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which Jesus also hates. Sounds like a pretty tough and resilient bunch. They're in a tough place, uh, and they're, they're not allowing those in their midst to do evil. But they have a problem. Verse 4, they have abandoned the love they had at first. Now this is not the same as saying they have abandoned their first love. As followers of Jesus, our first love is and ought to be the person of Jesus himself. So the charge is not that they have abandoned Jesus, but that they have abandoned love. This is a charge that I think I could be easily guilty of. The thing that drew me to Christ was truth. People for whom truth is of utmost importance will defend it uh, to the point of forgetting to love. My tendency is to stand on truth and let things fall where they may, without remembering to love the people I'm communicating the truth to. Uh, This is not quite right. (laughs) I need to remind myself that I still need to love the people I'm with. In his letter uh, to this very church, Ephesus, Paul instructed the Ephesians to speak the truth in love. And so here we can see that this, that this address to the church in Ephesus, uh, Paul has already addressed that very thing. Speak the truth in love. So this would be a word of instruction to us truth defenders. Don't abandon love. Don't forget to love people as you defend the truth. Don't be too willing to let go of relationship just to make your point about truth. Love your neighbor. So with the problem identified, what, what counsel does Jesus give to them? Repent. He tells them to, uh, to remember how, how they used to love and return to those acts of love. And then the warning. This is similar to the terms of the covenant, really. Blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. Do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Now, if we go back to the end of chapter 1 at verse 20, this is where Jesus tells us the meaning of the lampstands. He said, the the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So what does it mean when Jesus says that if they don't repent, he's going to remove the lampstand? I think it means they will no longer be recognized as being a church. Or at the very least, that their gatherings will not be acknowledged as a church gathering. That's a pretty serious consequence. But for those who do repent and conquer, Jesus has a reward. To eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. That, by the way, is the tree that Adam and Eve chose not to eat from. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's the first one. Let's see what Jesus says to the church in Smyrna. Verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, 
who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews but are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. I should probably put your mind at ease already. I'm not going to cover all the seven of these today. <laughs> We're going to do only one more after this. So what is the Lord's commendation to the church in Smyrna? Well, it's, it's not actually overtly stated, but Jesus acknowledges what the church is going through. They're experiencing tribulation, which means trouble and testing. And they're also poor, probably as a result of some of their trials. And they are being slandered. Paul himself received the same kind of treatment from the unbelieving Jews. The commendation then to them is that they are holding up under all this uh, trouble, under all these trials. They remain faithful and continue to live out the teaching of Christ and the apostles as they suffer. So suffering doesn't put a limit on us being able to live out our faith. What is interesting about this church is that there is no rebuke for them. But there's a warning of further persecution. Not endless persecution, but for a limited time. And he tells them that it is to test them. So, that's actually kind of encouraging, isn't it? They're told they would suffer. They're told not to fear. They're told some of the, that some of them will end up in prison. And they're told them that it will be for testing for a time only. When we get news that we're going to be tested, we often don't know what the journey is going to be like. When any of us get told that we have cancer, we don't know how long the battle will be or what the outcome will be, or how tough it will be. But the church in Smyrna is told right up front what's going to happen, uh, what it's for, and that it won't take very long. And then Jesus encourages them with a reward. He says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He concludes with another promise, that the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I'm going to come back to some of this a little bit later and probably next time also. But let's move on to the church in Pergamum. Verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent 
If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. The commendation here is that they hold fast to the name of Jesus and don't deny the faith. Even when one of their fellow fellow believers was killed in their midst. The problem, however, is that they're a divided congregation. Some of their group have either picked up or retained some of the teaching of Balaam. Balaam, as you recall, was the guy whose donkey spoke to him. Balaam was a man from Mesopotamia who practiced the divination. When Israel had finished their 40 years in the desert, and they gathered on the plains of Moab, uh, just east of the Jordan River across from Jericho. The king of Moab was in dread because of them. Israel had already defeated two of the Ammonite kings because they refused Israel passage. So Balak, the king of Moab, hired Balaam to curse Israel. The Lord told Balaam not to go. But he did. Then the Lord made it plain to Balaam to say only what the Lord told him to say. Balaam also made this known to King Balak. At several locations, King Balak built altars and made sacrifices to gods. And then he would call on Balaam to curse Israel. And every time, Balaam, when he came out, Just blessing came out of his mouth, exactly as the Lord had told him to do. From that account, we would think that Balaam was a righteous guy. He did what was right. He blessed them. But it is revealed by Jesus in this letter, in this address to Pergamum, that Balaam taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. If we go back to Numbers, uh, the account of Balaam takes place in Numbers 22 to 24. And we read in, in chapter 25, right after Balaam goes home, that the men of Israel began to whore with the daughters of Moab. And the Moabites invited the Israelites to sacrifice to their gods, to eat food sacrifice to idols, and to bow down to Baal. Because of that sin, God immediately sent a plague among them, and 24,000 Israelites died. So it seems that Balaam was not as righteous as he seems to appear in Numbers. And remember, he was a diviner by trade. That was what he did, a thing that God hates. So back to Pergamum. Some in that congregation were holding to the teaching of Balaam which is idol worship and sexual immorality. The teaching of the Nicolaitans is also mentioned. And little is known about the Nicolaitans. Uh, Probably they bore the name of some guy named Nikolai. (laughs) But it seems idolatry and sexual immorality were also associated with their practices. So what is Jesus' word to them? Repent. That's all he says. Repent. If not... I will come to you soon and war against 
them with the, with the sword of my mouth. So uh, interesting how, how that statement reads. I will come to you, that is, to the group to, uh, in Pergamum, and war against them, that portion of the congregation that is also practicing uh, idolatry. Come against them with the sword. But for those who conquer, for those who remain faithful, he says, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it so that no one, uh, that no one knows except the one who receives it. The message to this church is that God hates idolatry and sexual immorality. And it is the transgression, really, of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. And if you take the time to think about the Ten Commandments, really, the first commandment is the commandment. The rest of the commandments are just an explanation of what the first one means. So idolatry and sexual immorality are things that God hates because that is where, that is where the people uh, remove God as, as, their, as their God and they actually turn and worship somebody else. And why is sexual immorality always part of that picture? Uh, I think it's because sexual immorality is actually the ritual of idol worship. It is, the, it is their communion service of uh, worshiping false gods. And so the, the two always seem to go hand in hand. So that's a bit of a rebuke to us too, isn't it, to... Uh, when we think about sexual immorality and how in our own lives uh, we've been tested with it, right? And it's always right there. It's always so easy to go that way if you want to. Uh, even even things like premarital sex, we're, 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 we're walking away from what God's, God's design is. Therefore, repent is the only message they need to hear. If those who practice do not repent, God will take them out as he did the Israelites who yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. 24,000 dead. Now there are correlations in the addresses that I have not fully covered or discovered. For example, each address begins with a description of Jesus that comes from chapter 1. Have you noticed that? Look at the the address of each one of those and see if you can find it in chapter 1. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword is taken from Revelation 1.16. And this description aligns with the consequence of failing to repent, which is that Jesus will war against them with the sword of his mouth. Uh, the reward of conquering in each letter is also different, and I think must correspond to something else in each of these addresses. For example, in the address to Smyrna, Jesus identif- is identified as the one who died and came to life which seems to correspond with the promise that those who conquer will not be hurt by the second death. He's the Lord of life, therefore we are protected from the second death. So here at the end of the Pergamum address, there is the hidden manna and the white stone with a new name written on it. Could it be that the hidden manna is the reward for not eating food sacrificed to idols? Is the white stone with a new name written on it an indicator of the permanence of a name written in the book of life for those who obey the command to hold the command to hold fast to Jesus 
and to not deny the faith. I can't help but think there's a correlation there. From these three addresses, we've already learned some things that a holy God wants to say to his church. Repent. And remember to love as you did at first. Be faithful unto death. And repent of idolatry and sexual immorality. Repent of having other gods before the Lord our God. So, here's an assignment for this week. Read Revelation chapters 2 and 3 and ask God to reveal to you how do these addresses to the churches apply to our church and how do they apply to me. Don't be afraid to take time to sit down and think. Think about it and write some notes and, and, and then come back to it later and look at them again and think about it some more. And then we'll continue this next week. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for the reminder of your people Israel, how they who went astray and refused to obey came to nothing, and that you do not tolerate sin, that you are a holy God, and that there are rewards and blessings waiting for those who will walk faithfully with you. I thank you, Father, for this word of yours that we read today. And I pray that you would uh, pour out your Spirit on us. You say in your word that the Spirit is our teacher, and so I pray that you would teach us. Teach us individually and also teach us as a body. What are you saying to your church? What does a holy God have to say to us? And so as we submit ourselves to this, Father, I pray that you would work in us what is pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Our closing song is number 577 in your hymn book, When We Walk with the Lord. We will sing verses 1, 3, and 4. Please stand.
receive this benediction. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Have a good week.